From Springfield, this is State Week, a program of analysis and commentary on the events that made news this past week in Illinois state government and politics. I will support it if it comes to my desk to, to extend the program in whatever form. Uh, I mean, I can't imagine it would show up in some form um, that, you know, that I would be unwilling to. But again, the, the, the reality is that the legislature needs to go through this process, and I've said that from the very beginning. That's Governor J.B. Pritzker in an appearance on Thursday. He seemed to indicate an openness to extending a private school tax credit program. Teachers unions, they're not pleased. That issue and more could come up in the fall veto session. It's set to begin next week, and we'll preview the session and talk about some other items as well here on State Week. I'm Sean Crawford in Springfield. Our panel includes Charlie Wheeler, Professor Emeritus and former director of the Public Affairs Reporting Program at the University of Illinois Springfield. Charlie's also been a longtime Statehouse reporter and observer. And with us this week, Alex Degman. He covers the Statehouse for Illinois Public Radio stations. Alex, great to have you back with us again. Hey, thanks for having me, Sean. So, Alex, I'll start with you. It's what is known as Invest in Kids. That's the name of this program. It provides tax credits for parents whose kids go to private and parochial schools, and about 10,000 roughly take advantage of this. But it is set to expire soon, and a lot want it to. A lot of people want it to continue. I mentioned that teachers' unions they want it gone. So it's a hot button issue, and the governor certainly uh, turned up the heat a little bit this week as well. It seems uh, going into the going into the session as though this is going to be something that's going to get some discussion. Yeah, and this is something that has been percolating really since uh, this year's spring session, especially a lot of people whose constituents benefit from this program that, as you mentioned, is basically a tax credit. Um, and the idea is whether this is going to be extended by the end of the year, and we're getting a little bit close to that time now. Now, the issue is how that's going to be expanded, in what form, and what that's going to look like. And the governor's talking in Champaign about um, putting it on the legislature to do this. Um, that it, it's it's not surprising that this is what it's come to because I feel like uh, the governor is taking a lot of heat, as you mentioned, from both sides. He's taking heat from the teachers' unions, as you mentioned, who think that this is just another way to uh, not necessarily disinvest in public schools, but it's certainly not helping. And they're putting heat on him. And yet the Republicans are also putting heat on him because this is very helpful to them. So what he's done now is essentially put it in the legislature's court. Charlie, this has been a topic that's been around a long time. People who pay a lot of property taxes in some areas and say, well, we're supporting public schools this way, but we want to send our kids to a private school, a parochial school. They, they want some type of tax break, almost a voucher type program. No, this is actually, this was one of the uh, byproducts back in, in 2017 when the legislature created a new program to fund public education called the evidence-based formula that took into account each school district's uh, property wealth, the poverty level of the kids, the demographics of the kids, and, and tried to calculate it. Here's what a district needs to be able to successfully educate its student population. And here's how much it has, and the state will make up the difference. And part of the deal to get this evidence-based funding program approved into the law, Bruce Rauner was the governor at the time. And he, I think it's fair to say, he has great antipathy for all public employee unions. He doesn't believe in them, period. 
and the teachers union is no exception. And so kind of his price to sign evidence-based funding for the public schools was you have to include this voucher program for the private schools. And so that's how it got put in there. Uh, it, it was originally supposed to sunset, I believe, what, a couple of years ago, and it got extended. And now it's going to sunset, uh, I guess, at, at the end of this year. But the, the argument against it is that it's been sold as a program to help low-income kids, help minority kids, and in reality, it's not really doing that. And when the teachers union really reamed the governor big time in their news release, they were very, very critical. Here's a quote from from the, the Illinois Education Association and the Federation of Teachers. Governor Pritzker has chosen to side with anti-public education Republican governors in other states with the support of vouchers. The recent data from Chicago, where 40, 43% of schools benefiting from investing kids' funds had zero black vouchers for students. And it paints a stark picture of the exclusionary trend perpetuated by the current voucher system. And one of the arguments against the voucher program is that this takes away up to $75 million from the state via these tax credits that could be used for public schools. The anti-folks point out that there's no requirement that these private schools actually have to take any and all students. They don't have to accept students who have developmental disabilities or need an individual educational program. They don't have to have uh, disability accommodations. They don't have to have English as a second language teachers. They can be pretty much geared to, for one of a better term, your average or normal elementary or high school student, someone who doesn't need special needs, whereas public schools are required to take all kids regardless. And so that's another argument that's been used against it. But Charlie and, I, and Alex, you can weigh in on this too. I mean, uh, I think it was Rich Miller in uh, the Capital Facts newsletter brought up the fact that the governor has been a little bit all over the place with this issue. He's never necessarily closed the door completely, but he's talked about reducing the tax credit. He's talked about maybe another way to uh, formulate the tax credit. He Now he's basically saying, I'd consider it if they send it to me, which is you know still quite vague. So I can see why the teachers unions or those opposed to it might be wondering where he's at, but I'm assuming supporters are feeling the same way. They don't know where the governor really stands on this. If I'm not mistaken, when he first ran for governor, he was pretty critical and he flat out said that he would not support extending the thing. So yeah, like you say, he's he's been flip-flopping back and forth. And this is a, basically this is a punt to the General Assembly. Well, if they send it to me, um, I'll sign it and kind of with his fingers crossed behind his back, and I'm hoping they won't send it to me. And Alex, what's the likelihood, do you think, that could uh, happen, that maybe something gets brought up, gets discussed and debated, but doesn't quite make it through the General Assembly? I mean, uh, certainly the leaders are, uh, they side a lot with the uh, public school teachers in the state and the teachers' unions. We're 
certainly going to hear a lot about it during this veto session because people have been making noise about it for, like, like I said earlier, the entire spring session. And also we've been hearing about it over the summer. But the question is whether we're going to see any legislative action on it, because like I said, as of now, there's not a bill and it hasn't as, as such, it hasn't really been assigned to a committee yet. And we still need to see what each what leadership in each chamber is going to take up, because there are there are you know rumors floating around that some of these big issues might not make it out of both chambers just because leadership might not want to call the veto override. I'm thinking that uh, Speaker Welch and Senate President Don Harmon would just as soon not have to deal with this. And the reason is because on the one hand, progressives are very much against what they consider these uh, basically vouchers to allow folks to send their kids to religious schools, schools that will not take all students. And on the other hand, you have some of the more moderate conservative Democrats, particularly some of the Chicagoans, whose constituents would like this very much. And so it would be a very bruising battle, and it could subject members to perhaps primary challenges if they vote against the wishes of first the, the teachers' unions, which are a pretty potent political force, or against the wishes of the Archdiocese of Chicago and other religious institutions that very much back these programs. And sort of an irony in all this is that the president of the Chicago Teachers Union, Stacey Davis Gates, sends one of her kids to De La Salle Institute, which is obviously a private school. She said, if I recall correctly, her explanation was that he he's very much wants to be uh, involved in soccer, and De La Salle has a very strong soccer program. Well, there were other issues that are going to come up before the legislature in the veto session, and one of those, actually a couple of those, have to do with energy. So, uh, Alex, fill us in on what those are. So, yeah, there were a couple of vetoes that relate to energy-related things. One of them was the lifting of the longstanding nuclear moratorium in Illinois. That's been in place since the 80s, and that was at a time when there was a lot of uncertainty around nuclear safety. We had Three Mile Island, we had Chernobyl. So there were a lot of uh, there were a lot of people that were questioning that. But now, fast forward to 2023, and we've got some new mandates that have to make Illinois move away from certain sorts of uh, power production, like coal and natural gas and things like that. So, given that, there are some folks who don't believe that solar, wind, and other things like that are going to meet the needs of. Illinois moving forward, especially if they're going to move to so-called cleaner energy sources. So this was a bill to just basically lift that moratorium. Originally, it was written to allow uh, small modular reactors as the state starts to explore this as a potentially a viable option. Uh, the problem, though, is that Governor J.B. Pritzker um, didn't like it when the bill was changed to allow advanced nuclear reactors. The reason that he vetoed it, he said, was because advanced nuclear reactor is kind of vague. That opens the door to building these uh, larger, uh, these larger things that perhaps we're not ready for. So he had to veto the bill outright. Um, this angered some people. Um, he's been doing a pretty decent job of angering uh, people that side with him on certain things and, and other things. But 
the main thing that they seem to be upset about is that this is something that they think is needed and it didn't really leave a whole lot of room for negotiation. So what the sponsor of the measure said, State Senator Sue Rezin, is that she's immediately going to file to override it. But what I'm hearing is that there's also, um, in case that doesn't happen, because as I just mentioned, there doesn't seem to be a lot of appetite to bring up certain bills in certain chambers. She has uh, introduced a new piece of legislation that would possibly be more beneficial or uh, more beneficial to the governor or it might uh, be a little bit more up his alley and puts the language about uh, small modular reactors back in there. So of all the things that could come up in the veto session, this is one of them that is, you know, still too soon to say, I guess. Yeah. And Charlie, I mean, uh, you know, just uh, we can talk about more about this bill, but uh, when it comes to vetoes, I've always found it, too, that sometimes the legislature, it depends on who it is in charge of the legislature and what party the governor belongs to, but sometimes they don't want to, and this is a broad term, but embarrass the governor by overriding a veto. So maybe it's simpler to just craft a new bill, bring it up for a vote. Maybe the governor will go along with it. They can all save face that way. But that seems to happen many years, doesn't it? Yeah, it does. But I think as Alex was pointing out in this particular case, the governor is very much in favor of lifting the long-standing moratorium on any kind of new nuclear development in Illinois, but he didn't like the way the, the bill that the legislature sent him was drafted. The definitions were too vague, and he pointed out in his veto message, this could lead to the kind of large-scale nuclear developments that we've had to bail out in recent years uh, in places like Clinton and Byron and, and, and in the Quad Cities. And he believes that it should be limited and say only in the case of these small modular reactors, which as I understand it are being developed so that they could basically be brought in kind of prefab and placed in say a coal powered plant that is being taken offline and replaced with nuclear energy from this small kind of, you know, in, in the back of a box truck type of reactor. And so the the bill that I believe Senator Risen is, is filed would make it clear that this moratorium would be lifted only for these small modular reactors. And they also, the bill would also require that the Illinois Commerce Commission would have to certify the installation and the operation that, that this is safe. And those changes, I think, would satisfy the governor, at least address the points he raised in his veto message. And so my guess is that the override won't go anywhere. And instead, Senator Resin will push this kind of modified bill and it'll pass pretty easily and the governor will sign it. You're listening to State Week. I'm Sean Crawford in Springfield. Our panel includes Charlie Wheeler and Alex Degman with Illinois Public Radio. Well, there was also some news this week, Alex, that came out regarding a health care program for undocumented residents, especially those who are a little bit older. Uh, this, this has come up many times as far as the cost of this program, whether or not the state can afford it. Yeah, so we knew this was coming, but it still was a little bit of a blow to people who support the Healthcare Benefits for Immigrant Seniors Program, or HBIS. Uh, the state essentially announcing this week that they're about to hit their enrollment cap that they set back in the summer when the budget was approved. 
They said that the program that covers undocumented residents and some green card holders, uh, 65 and older, is about to hit 16,500 enrollments. That's going to happen within the next couple of weeks. So they are pausing enrollment in that program as of November 6th. And this came after we heard news in July that the newer program, HBIA, um, Health Benefits for Immigrant Adults, that covered people aged 42 to 64, was already out of money and they couldn't accept any new um they couldn't accept any new, any new enrollees after July 1st. So that just continues the conversation that's been happening for a while that these programs were not they they weren't properly budgeted for. They just did not anticipate how important these programs were going to be to so many people and how popular they would be. So they're still trying to figure out how to make this work. Now, the November 6th deadline is it, it, it is a hard deadline, but if you are um, enrolled in either program before November 6th, then you will be covered. And if you're if, if you're already enrolled as of November 6th, the coverage is still going to continue. So this isn't something that is going to come up legislatively in veto session, but we might hear conversations about how to better fund this program, um, how to maybe differently fund this program or whether it's entirely viable at all. Charlie, you've talked about this on the show before, but uh, a lot of people may say, well, what the heck? These are undocumented immigrants. Uh, why should the state have to come up with this money? But there are reasons for this. Yeah, and I, and I think part of the reasons why people support it is you look at it kind of rationally with the emotion uh, out of the way that, well, these are not us. They, these people are them. Is that in this country, if I get sick and I have some life-threatening condition, a hospital has to admit me and has to stabilize me and take care of me, regardless of whether I'm a, a U.S. citizen, a citizen from uh, Ukraine, a citizen from Venezuela, a citizen from you know, the moon, and they have to take care of me. And it doesn't matter whether I have insurance or not, and if I can't pay, the hospital basically eats the cost and does that by spreading it among everybody else. Now, the argument is by providing health insurance, coverage for these folks, ideally, when they start to feel sick, they'll go to see a doctor. They won't wait until they're on death's doorstep to do it. One of the things that also was supposed to occur and hasn't happened yet the state was supposed to institute co-pays. Uh, and originally they were supposed to start on July 1st. Uh, and I think the co-pays were something like $250 for inpatient hospitalization, $100 for emergency room visit. But the, the what would you say, the rulemaking process to actually draft the language has been stalled. And the administration uh, says that they have to carefully draft the rules to implement these co-pays to make sure that they, they don't jeopardize the federal matching dollars uh, that hospitals can get and the state can get for Medicaid programs. And now they're thinking that they won't really have the rules ready to go uh, much before January 1st. And so that's been another hitch. And what happened was, as Alex indicated, the, the General Assembly knew going into 
the budget making process that there wasn't going to be enough money to cover the cost of these. I believe we appointed, we, we, I'm sorry, I believe we appropriated approximately $550 million to fund these programs. And the most recent update says that actually they're going to cost $831 million. And part of it was the legislature said to the governor, okay, well, you take steps to uh, bring these costs into line. One of the steps, as Alex indicated, was setting cutoff dates to participate. And the other was this co-pays. And so my guess is that we're going to overrun the, the budgeted amount. And then the question is, what happens? Well, let's stay on the immigration issue because, uh, Charlie, you were talking about this before we went on the air. There was uh, a move by a group out of St. Louis to go to Chicago and kind of discuss the possibility of some of the migrants who have arrived in Chicago. And, of course, the city's having trouble uh, finding where to house them about moving them to St. Louis. Maybe some other cities would be interested in that. Yeah, there was a, a story reported by WBEC this past week that a nonprofit outfit called the International Institute of St. Louis is had sent a, a emissary to Chicago to look into the possibility of having some of the migrants that are in Chicago being resettled down in St. Louis. And this program is funded primarily by private donors and it provides housing for up to three months, cell phones, apprenticeship programs, job placements, uh, all kinds of things to help the, the newcomers get settled in. And the uh, person who came up from St. Louis, uh, Carlos Ramirez, talked about uh, St. Louis, it would be a better place if these people moved and it would be better for Chicago and everybody would win. And he said that the officials in St. Louis are very much in line and on board with this initiative. And so part of it, I guess, is that in St. Louis, they have a lot of job openings that they can't fill. And St. Louis has also lost population over recent years. And this would be a way for them to, to basically in, increase the folks living there. And somebody remarked, you know, kind of offhandedly, well, maybe one of these uh, Venezuelans in Chicago is a baseball player <laughs> and the Cardinals could sign him. Alex, you're a former St. Louis resident, worked there for a long time, so you have a pretty good handle on some of the issues within that city. But uh, your thoughts on, on, what, uh, on what's going on with this issue? Yeah, I mean, St. Louis's uh, population loss is not really a shock to anybody. It's not really a surprise to anybody. Uh, St. Louis has been losing population for a while. And while um, while resettling migrants is not going to reverse that, um, it's, it is it is going to be a really good uh, economic uh, jolt in the arm, I suppose. Because if you look at the history of what St. Louis has done to help migrant populations, especially refugees who are fleeing war-torn countries, I mean, St. Louis right now has an incredible Bosnian population. There's an entire section of town that is just Bosnian restaurants and families uh, living in this in this general area. And they also helped resettle about, uh, I think, 2,000 Afghan refugees when the Taliban came back in and took back over. It was really fun to, uh, as a reporter, to go down to the arch grounds and seeing uh, these 
11, 12 year old Afghan kids playing soccer under the arch. And that's the kind of image that St. Louis wants to project. We, even though we are in Missouri and St. Louis and Missouri don't always see eye to eye on everything, um, they want to be seen as a welcoming city and they know what diverse populations can bring and they know what good that can do for the city because you know generally speaking the um the latino population the um this the spanish-speaking population in st louis overall is not very large i think the last census showed it was only about uh five percent or so so this this would be very good for them and the, Inter and the international institute has a very good track record of helping folks like this Let's go to our notes from the field. And Alex, I'm going to stay with you. You've been looking into an effort to unionize legislative staff. What's the latest with this? Well, uh, the Illinois Legislative Staff Association has been holding a series of town halls over the past few days. And they tell me that the general mood right now is, is pretty positive. Overall, uh, members are very happy to see that this is in legislative form, finally, and that it has been assigned to a committee. Uh, they're scheduled to hear it in House Exec, which, um, you know, that, that's that's good news for them. However, there are some changes that they would like to see. Um, it, in mainly, this just comes from the fact that uh, organizers are telling me that the bill that's before them now is kind of boilerplate language. Uh, California is attempting uh, is attempting unionization efforts for legislative employees, so is New York. So they think that we could do a little bit better. Uh, we, meaning Illinois, uh, collectively, could do a little bit better on this bill. For example, um, it has an effective date of 2026. Uh, for them, that's a non-starter. There are strike provisions in the bill that they don't necessarily like that tells them how much advance notice they need to give their managers before they strike and when they can strike. Um, also, that that's, that's just kind of weird for them because that defeats the point of labor action, they think. And then uh, severability clauses, uh, they would like the entire contract or the or not the contract they want the entire bill to have a severability clause in case one part of it's found unconstitutional then the entire bill isn't ruled unconstitutional so um whether this is going to make it into an amendment remains to be seen because at this point i'm not sure if speaker staff has seen or considered those changes i'm told that the illinois legislative staff association has uh, sent suggestions to the speaker's office over the past couple of weeks and have not gotten a response. But the speaker's office, uh, a spokesperson tells me that uh, the speaker is open to changes, open to amendments, and that is why he filed it weeks before veto when he did. Okay. And Charlie? This is a uh, note from the field for all of you statistical nerds out there, like myself. We talked about the fall veto session. Well, that's kind of a misnomer. And the reason I say that is the legislature, when they left town at the end of May, had introduced 6,687 bills. 567 of them made it to the governor. Out of those 567, there were a total of seven that actually had some changes. The governor either vetoed or amendatorily vetoed, where he said, if you include this language or take this language out, I'll approve it. And so the, the bottom line is that of the 567 bills sent to the governor, 561 of them became law. The fact that we have a veto session where there's basically going to be only two or three bills that are actually going to be considered dealing with, quote, vetoes, 
as I said at the at the outset, I think it's kind of a misnomer. I've always tried to refer to it as the fall session. Just about every year, the most significant news coming out of October and November has nothing to do with vetoes. It's with bills that have been languishing and that get moved, you know, like what Alex said with the uh, unionization bill. That's obviously not a veto, but that could be a very significant piece of legislation that emerges over the next three weeks. All right. Well, we'll see what happens. The fall session set to start next week. That's all the time we have for State Week. Our panel included Charlie Wheeler and Illinois Public Radio's Alex Degman. Find our show where you get your podcasts through the NPR app and at nprillinois.org. Just look for State Week and join us next time. I'm Sean Crawford. You've been listening to State Week, a program of commentary and analysis of events in Illinois state politics and government. State Week is produced in the state capitol by public radio station NPR Illinois. This is IPR, Illinois Public Radio.